Well, for the Christmas season this year at Touchstone, we're going to do something a little different than we have done in the past. We usually have a special Christmas program one evening just before Christmas, usually on a Sunday evening, and we're not going to do that this year. Instead, for with Christmas Eve being on Chris, on Sunday this year, on Christmas Eve being on a Sunday this year, we're going to celebrate by observing Advent during the entire month of December, leading up to Christmas with some of the kids here at the church participating by doing readings on Sundays and a little something special on uh, Christmas Eve for that Sunday morning service. Uh, I'm also hoping that devoting the month of December to the real meaning of Christmas this year will also provide a counterweight, so to speak, to the dramatically increased secularized marketing that has taken place this year. I don't know if you noticed, but Black Friday, it used to be one day, Friday following Thanksgiving Thursday, when the merchants would have these huge sales to kick off the Christmas shopping season. This year, many merchants were already having Black Friday sales in October. And now they're having extended Black Friday sales. Now, I'm not sure what the term Black Friday even means now, because they've redefined it. So to counteract the huge expansion of Black Friday from a single day at the end of November to encompassing literally the whole last quarter of the year. We're going to devote the month of December to the coming of Christ. What is Advent? Advent is the season of reflective remembering and honoring of the birth of Jesus Christ and his anticipated second coming, which has been observed for centuries by Christian groups all over the world. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. And as mentioned a moment ago, it's both a commemoration of Christ's birth, his first coming, and it's also a looking forward to his second coming. So Advent has two elements to it, really, a remembrance and an anticipation. There's a looking back and a looking forward involved in it. The observation and the celebration of Advent has taken a number of different forms by Christians throughout the centuries. So as a result, the traditions followed for Advent, they vary. Here at Touchstone, we're going to follow a very basic, contemporary, Western, Protestant form for observing Advent. You may be familiar with other traditions, and these Advent traditions are all just that. They're just traditions. They, they don't carry the weight of Scripture, although the ideas expressed in the Advent traditions come largely from Scripture. The Advent season begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and this year that is this Sunday. A common tradition that's observed involves an Advent wreath, which is typically a circle of evergreens with four candles around its perimeter. We have one over here on the side of the stage. There's 
a fifth candle in the center of the wreath. The four perimeter candles are lit one at a time on successive Sundays, and then the center candle is lit on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Now, although there is some variation in the traditions about the names and the meanings of these candles and the wreath itself, generally, they're as follows. The first candle is the hope candle or the prophecy candle. This is one of the three purple candles that you'll see. The, the color purple signifies repentance, fasting, and spiritual preparation. Purple is also the color of royalty, which points to the coming king, Jesus. The second candle is the faith candle, or the Bethlehem candle, and this candle is also purple. The third candle is the joy candle, or the shepherd's candle. It's the pink candle. Pink represents joy and celebration. The fourth candle is the peace candle, or the angel's candle. This candle is also purple. And then finally, the fifth candle, which is the one in the center of the wreath, is obviously the Christ candle, the color of this candle is white, representing purity, light, restoration, holiness. White is also the color of victory. The wreath itself, it symbolizes the crown of the thorns of Jesus' head when he was crucified. And the red holly berries represent the blood of Christ that was shed when he was crucified for our sins. The evergreens symbolize eternal life, which he gives to us. And if there are pine cones, they will symbolize Resurrection. For the next four Sundays, we'll be observing Advent with the teachings focusing on the four aspects of the coming of Christ that are represented by the four Advent candles. Today is the first week of Advent, so we begin by lighting the hope or the prophecy candle, and then we're going to follow that with some readings before the Bible study itself. So I have some fine young gentlemen here that are going to light the candle, and then they'll do some readings for us. Thanks, you guys. The Hope or Prophecy Candle. Our Bible study this morning is going to focus on the same theme that is represented by the Hope or the Prophecy Candle. Why is there Christmas? What happened that caused the need for Christmas? This, this is where we want to begin today. So in the beginning, and literally in the beginning, when we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, many years ago, at the very beginning of human history, God created a man and a woman and placed them in a beautiful garden paradise, which he had prepared for them to live in. It was an amazing place. God provided everything they needed to thrive. It was a paradise in the true sense of the word. And the relationship that the people had with God was something only we can dream about. There was no fear, no shame, no guilt. Their lives were full of purpose and joy. Adam and Eve were free to enjoy everything in the garden except for one thing. They were not to eat the fruit from a single tree that stood in the middle of the garden. This one restriction, with it, the Lord created an opportunity for the people to choose to love him and trust him. For real love to exist, there needs to be the opportunity for it to be freely given and refused. 
Now, we don't know what this tree looked like or what kind of fruit it produced. But if I was to guess, based on the way the Lord works and the way human nature is, this tree was probably not a particularly beautiful tree, and its fruit was probably not as attractive as some of the other delicious and visually appealing fruit in the garden. Its forbiddenness is what made the tree and its fruit attractive to the people. God doesn't deny us the best and most beautiful things. He's not like that. Unfortunately, our own warped human nature often manufactures the illusion that the thing being denied us is the best thing. We reason it must be the best thing. It's the one thing that I can't have, so it must be the best. Well, sadly, this paradise which God created for the people didn't last. One day, the whole thing came crashing down. The man and the woman chose to eat the fruit from the tree that God had told them not to eat from. And in choosing to do that, they broke the relationship that they had with God and everything else in their world. Their relationship with the rest of the creation, their relationship with each other, and even their relationship with their self. God had warned them that if they ate the fruit of that tree, they would die. And that is what began to happen. Death entered their world. Their purpose for living died. They began to know fear and shame and anxiety. They began to feel insecure and feel the need to hide from God and from each other. The rest of the creation worked against them rather than cooperating with them. They were no longer seen as the benevolent masters of their domain, but as a threat to be feared and avoided. Living life became difficult and toilsome. Death crept into every crevice of the surrounding creation. And this is the shared experience of the whole human race. Now, if this is where the story ended, it would be the saddest story ever told. But it doesn't end there, because the one true God is a God of redemption and rescue. The first promise of redemption and rescue and healing was given by God right after this terrible fall by Adam and Eve. In the midst of their brokenness and their failure, hurting and lost after what they had done, God promised that one day he himself would make everything right by doing for them and for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. He would send a Savior a Messiah, the Christ, to rescue us. Christmas was coming. In the midst of all of that tragedy, the Lord gave us hope. God continued to speak this message of hope again and again, promising that the Christ was coming. And you might remember from our study of the letter of Hebrews, the opening words of that letter, Hebrews 1.1, says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. One of the voices that God used was the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9:2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke and burdened the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want us to look at the words of this prophecy in more detail, this promise of the Lord, this promise of Christ's coming, this promise of Christmas coming. So you can flip over to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 2. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The first thing I want us to note is how the past tense is being used here rather than future tense. When the past tense was used like this, when speaking about future events, it meant that these things were absolutely certain to take place. These things were so certain that they were being spoken of as having already taken place. We can easily overlook the significance of that if we forget that these words that we're reading from Isaiah were written down 700 years before Jesus was born. The Hebrew word that is translated as deep darkness, it literally means death shadow. The darkness is of a character that casts a death-like shadow. In the time that Isaiah wrote these words, the immediate darkness and death shadow was the Assyrian Empire that was swallowing up everything around it, including decimating the land of Israel. There's a larger meaning in these words, though. They refer to the state of this world. Since the fall of humanity, the world we live in is dominated by suffering and death. And most of that suffering and death has been brought on through the selfishness the sin of people. Left to our own devices, we have turned this world into a place of darkness with the shadow of death lingering over it. Lingering over it. The darkness is also a reference to our alienation from God. The relationship that we were intended to have with God as our Heavenly Father was destroyed by our sin, by our pushing him out of our life by our throwing off his authority over us, by our trusting in ourself rather than trusting in him, by our choosing our own way rather than following him. And in a sense, we are born into this world grieving the loss of that relationship that we don't have with our Heavenly Father, with God. We long for God to know him, to be in relationship with him. We can mistake that longing for God as a longing for something else. We feel the need for prestige, for wealth, for adventure, for a lover, for security and peace. These things point to this deeper longing, a longing for a connection with the eternal, transcendent God. Blaise Pascal wrote, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, 
since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, with God himself or by God himself. In the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you might remember when the world of Narnia was under the control of the White Witch, the state of Narnia was described as always being winter and never Christmas. The same idea is being expressed by Isaiah's words here of a land of deep darkness. It's always winter and never Christmas in this world, in our lives, before the Christ comes in. But the great light talked about here, that this light has dawned. It has come. It has come into this world of endless winter of deep darkness. Jesus is that great light. He's the light of the world. John 8, 12, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus came into this world to rescue us from the darkness, from the death shadow, from the endless winter, from our alienation, separation from God. John 12, 48, Jesus said, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus coming into this world is Christmas. Verse 3 of Isaiah 9 says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. The big idea here is joy is the result of the great light coming into the world. The joy that this great light, the Messiah, the, the Christ brings is compared to the joy at the harvest time or the joy when the plunder is divided after a great victory over the enemy. One commentator writes that these contrasting spheres that are used to illustrate the greatness of this joy expresses every sort of joy ever known. When the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds in the field announcing the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, in Luke 2.10, he said this, he says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. The coming of Christ into the life of a person causes great joy. Romans 14, 17, Paul wrote, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was saying that it's not about the religious rigmarole, following a bunch of legalistic rules made up by people to prove their devotion and their worth to God. Instead, it's about a relationship with God through Christ, which produces a genuinely good life that is peaceful and joyful. Religion doesn't produce lasting, genuine joy in a person's life. It can create a feeling of joy for a while, as a person may initially feel good about themselves and what they're doing. But it doesn't last. Over time, it begins to change from a feeling of joy to a feeling of anxiety and dread. That's because the religious commitment is all on our own shoulders. 
It's all our responsibility. Our feeling of being right with God is dependent on how good we are doing at following the rules. But we fail at keeping the rules. And the more we fail, the more anxious we become. Eventually, we'll be miserable religious people that don't like ourselves. We don't like our life. We don't like other people. We especially don't like those who have a genuine, joyful relationship with God because in our religious, twisted mind, that person is the worst rule-breaker of all because they're enjoying the blessings of a relationship with the Lord and not paying the price for any of it. Don't be religious. Have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Going back to Isaiah 9, verse 4, it says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The slavery of sin and the burden of religion have been broken by the coming of the Christmas child. The words Jesus spoke that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew come to mind here. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, remember Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this world, we struggle and we fight and we work to prove our worth, to justify our existence both to ourselves and to others and to God. Jesus sets us free from the score systems of this world. He tells us to come to him and to trust in what he's done for us. Follow him as our shepherd. He gives us rest. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He refreshes our soul. He guides us along right paths. Even when we walk through the darkest valleys, we have no reason to fear because he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He prepares a rich table for us, even in the presence of our enemies. Our cup overflows. His goodness and love will follow us all the days of our life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 5 says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. It's speaking of the Lord destroying the weapons of war and the suffering that it produces. It brings to mind the description in Isaiah chapter 2 when the Lord will, dis- will establish his rule over all. Isaiah writes there in 2, Verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion 
the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. We live in disturbing times. All of the violence and the hatred between people is unsettling. It can feel overwhelming. What a day it will be when all of the violence and the hatred between people will be done away with and all of that energy that is going into hating and destroying each other will instead go into doing productive, life-giving things. Finally, verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to talk more about this verse in a couple of weeks. For now, I want to say this child is the solution that we long for the one that we hope in, the Christmas child, the Christ. The coming of the Christmas child was the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue us, to give us a new life, to give us a new now and a new future, to give us a relationship with Him as our Heavenly Father. And the second coming of Christ will complete the establishment of His kingdom when the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, will rule and reign forever and ever. In Luke chapter 4, the story is told of the day Jesus went to the town of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath he attended synagogue. And when invited, he stood up and he read from the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And this is the passage that he read. Isaiah 61.1 He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, he then rolled up the scroll and he handed it back to the synagogue attendant. He sat down and he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The Christ has come. Let us bow our heads. Father, thank you for sending the Christ, for sending your Son, Jesus, as our Messiah, as our Savior, as our Rescuer. Lord, help us to consider that in a in a deep way this month as we remember during this season the coming of Jesus and what you have done for us through that and what you're going to accomplish through his second coming. I ask you to bless your people this morning, Lord. Touch each one. Remind us of the preciousness that we have in your heart, Lord, as you have sent your Son, Jesus. 
an expression of your profound love and grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.